From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. to Terra This week, we're starting a two-part episode on climate and emotions. My name is Sarah Chitzas, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that this episode was created in the ancestral, unceded, traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, in the territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, or so-called Vancouver. This episode is being broadcasted from Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwichi, Wiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. Specifically, we're broadcasting from unrecognized Pappas Trace Cree territory. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. Climate emotions, such as climate grief and anxiety, are tied to experiences of changes in our environment. The risks and harms associated with climate change are more likely to be experienced more severely and frequently by Black, Indigenous, and people of colour. We encourage listeners to consider the ways in which our identities impact our experiences of climate change. This week, we're talking about climate change and emotions. Before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that this episode is a bit of a heavy one. We'll be discussing some pretty tough emotions and trauma associated with climate change. I encourage you to take space where you need it. You may have heard terms like climate anxiety or climate grief in the past few years, but what do they really mean? Eco-anxiety, sometimes also called climate anxiety, has been defined by the American Psychological Association and Eco-America as, quote, a chronic fear of environmental doom, end quote. Climate grief, on the other hand, has been defined by Ashley Consolo and Neville Ellis in 2018 as, quote, the grief felt in relation to experienced or anticipated ecological losses, including the loss of species, ecosystems, and meaningful landscapes due to acute or chronic environmental change." End quote. A third climate-related emotion is solastasia, coined by Glenn Albrecht. Solastasia refers to when landscapes are vastly changed by climate change to the extent that individuals feel a sense of homesickness even when they're still home. Personally, I've been feeling more feelings of hopelessness and at times apathy in the face of climate change this past year than I ever have before. In British Columbia, where I live, we've seen increasingly severe climate events, including forest fires every summer for many years now, the heat dome last July, and floods this past winter. And that's not even to mention the increasing number of extreme events being experienced elsewhere in the country or the world, such as the massive floods going on in Pakistan right now. As I learn more about just how big of a threat climate change is to all of our health and well-being, it can feel really daunting and isolating to even begin to figure out how to try to address this problem. 
This episode is an attempt to sort through some of the concerns I have about the emotions that climate change can contribute to, and it's also been a great excuse for me to talk to one of my favorite former professors in the Department of Resource Economics and Environmental Sociology at the University of Alberta, Dr. Deborah Davidson. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Deborah Davidson to learn more about her research on the academic understanding of climate-related emotions. We'll wrap up the episode with a few more thoughts about finding hope in the face of impending climate doom. My name is Deborah Davidson. I'm a professor of environmental sociology at the University of Alberta. To start out, I would appreciate hearing about your research and your work on climate emotion. Yeah, sure. Well, I think like many of the researchers who are starting to look at emotional responses to climate change, it started from a very personal place with our own personal responses to what is going on around us. And for me, that kind of went along with, I guess, a broader recognition of just the degree to which emotions just permeate every aspect of personal behaviors, of collective engagement, of political responses to climate change. And we're starting to see, you know, more research focused on emotional climate change. But from where I'm sitting after having gone through a lot of it, it's very piecemeal. And a lot of it is very empirical or applied. So it might be very specifically focused on what kinds of triggers can we integrate into climate communications to generate more proactive responses? It's a big, big area of research. And this perfectly legitimate area of research. But, you know, the more I started reading, the more I just felt like there was a more, I guess, comprehensive story to be told about the role of emotions in human decision-making and human behaviors and the consequences, the collective consequences of those emotional processes. And there again, I think is another gap because a lot, I mean, the lion's share of research on emotions in the academy comes from disciplines like psychology, some work in behavioral economics, and of course, all of the affective neurosciences, but basically they focus on the individual. And, you know, we in sociology It's our kind of disciplinary mandate to take things beyond the individual and focus on social interaction, focus on outcomes for macro-structural change and so forth. And so I really wanted to just start to draw those connections. So that's a very circuitous way to say, I feel climate grief. I feel anger. I'm fully cognizant of how my emotions affect my responses to other people in kind of the climate dialogue space, whether that's in social media or whether that's in a meeting context. And I thought this is something that that we need to look at. Mm -hmm. Are there any kind of key emotions relating to climate change that you feel like you've come across a lot in your work? I might sort of adjust that question a little bit. So first of all, there has been like kind of in the popular and scientific press as it relates to climate change and emotions, there's a kind of an upswelling of interest in anxiety and grief and and for good reason, because we are seeing particularly among youth, you know, just a growing sense of 
anxiety and alarm regarding the state of the world and, you know, its implications for their future well-being. A lot of that work I find tends to be about how to manage climate grief rather than how can we take a broader perspective and, and how, how can we either move people towards a place of constructive engagement so that individuals can be active participants in collective efforts to do something about climate change rather than just, you know, trying to make peace with it, as it were. So that's kind of part one, like just do a survey of, you know, existing discourse on climate change and emotions. There's a lot out there on climate grief and anxiety. And then I guess to a secondary extent, the communication studies work that I just mentioned, there's a particular attention there in kind of juxtaposing positive emotions in general versus negative emotions in general in their utility and motivating action. So, you know, does hope or fear motivate people more consistently? My reaction to that general area of research is, you know, that's that's interesting, but there's just so many questions left unanswered, partly by virtue of the fact that none of us experiences a single emotion in isolation. Part of the reason is that none of us respond to the same kind of messaging in the same way emotionally. And so it doesn't really get us very far. I mean, there are some general things that we can say, you know, fear-based messaging tends to turn people off eventually. It might initially get their attention, but nobody wants to sit in that negative space. And so they need something else. Fear needs to coincide with hope. Anger can be, you know, really energizing as well. Nothing wrong with anger. But my personal sentiment after just really doing a deep dive in ship on emotions in general, not strictly in relation to climate change, is that there is one particular emotion or, or I guess group of emotional responses that I think is really important and it's not getting enough attention, and that is empathy. And there's so much, just really great research across so many different disciplines, which makes it a very clear and compelling case that empathy is linked to our ability to come together as groups, to cooperate, to engage in reciprocity, and ultimately to address collective action problems. And, you know, what is climate change if not a collective action problem? I am particularly interested in the role of empathy in our social responses to climate change, and not just observing expressions of empathy. You know, do we care about polar bears? Do we care about people who are baking in Southern England right now versus people who were baking two months ago all across Southeast Asia and so on? But even more importantly, if we accept the proposition that greater levels of empathy, that the expansion of what Arlie Hashad calls our empathy maps so that we can feel empathy towards people kind of outside of our tribe, outside of our in-group, if we can accept the premise that that would be very helpful towards addressing climate change, then the next question comes in our strategies, whether they're group level or whether at the policy level, how can we motivate or how can we basically create better conditions to support empathy? And then on the flip side, what do we observe going on right now, which does the exact opposite? And there's, you know, that's a laundry list. 
right? I mean, just the very, the very fact of the nature of our Western social structures are just not really conducive to empathy, certainly not empathy beyond our in-group. Neoliberal capitalism teaches us th that you're number one and that you need to see, you know, see to your own needs and that, uh, you know, competition is the name of the game, et cetera, et cetera. And so just applying an empathy lens to sort of evaluating our prospects for and strategies to help with our ability to address climate change, I just, I think would be extremely insightful and could help us go a long way to just shifting narratives, even shifting policy landscape from the local to the international level. If we start to think in this way, if we start to think less about who's willing to pay and more about how can we induce concern for others at a broader scale. That was Dr. Deborah Davidson talking about climate emotions. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. Let's hear more from Deborah now. I guess I speak in more general terms of community well-being and the impacts of climate change, prospects for adapting to those impacts while at the same time at the community level playing a constructive and progressive role in seeking to mitigate climate change. I think that one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is, again, kind of coming back to climate grief and climate anxiety, something closely related to that is trauma. And, you know, that's also a piece that we don't really talk about. And it's not quite the same thing as grief or anxiety, but a big looming concern as we see the escalation in the frequency and intensity of extreme events, like the heat dome that hit the Pacific Northwest, like repeated flooding, like wildfires that are just ripping through Southern Europe and Western North America right now, those extreme events when they hit entire communities, clearly those are deeply traumatic events. So here, I think, is another space where there's a real important need for research. On the one hand, if you sort of peruse the health sciences research that's focused on trauma, again, it tends to focus on the individual, an individual who comes home from war and experience, you know, is experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome and that individual, uh, their prospects for the future are gauged on their level of social support and community support around them. So the picture is as of an individual who has experienced trauma and returns to a community of other individuals who have not experienced that same trauma. And then the recipe is to cultivate social supports within that, to support that one individual. Well, what happens when the entire community consists of individuals, all of whom have experienced a trauma and all of whom are suffering the consequences of trauma. We know a lot from natural disaster research about at least initial reactions to natural disasters, that it brings community members together, that it is a moment in which we do see an elevation of empathy, like we were just talking about before, but it is also a form of trauma. And what are the typical responses of an individual to trauma? They withdraw. They do not have the emotional capacity to reach out and support others when they can barely get out of bed themselves that day. And so when you have an entire community of individuals who are facing that at the same time, then where do 
the resources come from to bring that community back together, to cope and recover from that disaster, much less engage collectively in proactive responses to climate change. And so as we're seeing more and more communities dealing with larger scale and more repeated disaster events, the aggregate effects of that are really alarming to me at the very same time in which we need people to give collectively at a scale beyond anything that any of us has really been called upon to do in generations. So that disjuncture between the drain on our emotional capacities to engage collectively at the very same time that the need for collective engagement is so enormous is really concerning to me. And I don't think that's something that's really getting any attention. Knowing that there's going to be more increasingly frequent and severe climate events and disasters, how do you think we can kind of build that community well-being or support and empathy among community members? I think that simply acknowledging that grief and trauma are important and very consequential impacts of natural disasters is step number one. As researchers, as planners, as emergency responders, we tend to look at things like injuries, fatalities, and property damage. And those are the things that we focus on that need recovering. And there's very little, to my knowledge, real attention to the emotional and psychological costs of natural disasters. So that's kind of point number one, is simply you know, recognizing that this is an important entire category of impacts that have long-term effects. I mean, there, there have been studies within sociology of certain natural disasters that do longitudinal work and show that years after an event, people are still mentally and emotionally suffering as a consequence of an event that they experienced. But number two, I do think that once we sort of pass that first phase and acknowledge that this is an important need to be f- fulfilled, then our recovery plans can begin to include plans to assist with the emotional coping that needs to happen in these communities in order to come back to a place of capability, both at the individual level and at the community level. And so including in our disaster response plans, not only evacuation centers and numbers to call for financial compensation and and so forth, to also include as a regular feature of uh, natural disaster response planning, plans for emotional support for, for people in need, but also plans for moving beyond just providing people with immediate emotional support, but providing plans for the kinds of community level collective increment that can serve to bring people back together to a place where they feel motivated to continue to contribute to their community. Out of your work so far on climate emotion, has there been anything in particular that you found surprising or you'd like to emphasize? Well, one of the things that I think is probably the most important thing to bear in mind is that well, two parts. The first one is is recognizing that emotions feature in all of our decision-making processes. So it's not a matter of 
trying to avoid emotions, or it's not a matter of if you're reacting emotionally, then that's the wrong kind of reaction. And we need to get you into this purely cognitive space if you want to participate in. So number one is recognizing that emotions are a part of decision-making and that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And then number two is that none of our kind of, I call them emotion cognition pathways. So that pathway from initial emotional response to ultimately some kind of behavior, those are never fixed. I mean, we might be stuck in ruts in which we respond to similar threats in similar ways, but none of that is predetermined. And there are always opportunities to disrupt those pathways. And so for those individuals who because of their experience of trauma, might be leaning towards withdrawal, checking out. You know, just like, I can't handle it. I can't read the news about climate change anymore. I'm going to stop trying. It feels, you know, hopeless. I'm just, I don't care about my energy consumption or my tons of emission anymore. I'm just going to check out. There are always opportunities to sort of disrupt that pathway. And so I think for me, again, that's a particular area of research interest, is how can we disrupt those pathways that tend to lead people towards spaces of inaction, some kind of soft form of denial, let's say, or towards withdrawal? How can we disrupt those pathways and bring those people more towards behaviors that involve pro-climate action of some form, particularly collective action? And that's kind of two-way. On the one hand, it involves having a better understanding of those emotion cognition pathways. And, you know, what are those conditions that lend themselves towards moving people in those inaction pathways versus those people who are tend towards the action pathways. But on the other hand, it also means rethinking in creative ways what collective action to address climate change looks like. And how can we create those spaces that become more inviting, that become more emotionally rewarding and supportive rather than places of antagonism, places of serious like threats, violent threats or you know psychological threats to one's well-being. How can we create kind of a more diverse palette of what climate action looks like so that We're just not only presenting opportunities that are not hospitable spaces for certain people. So I think that recognizing and setting as a goal, disrupting these pathways so that we can bring more and more people into a space in which they feel motivated and they feel rewarded for engaging in climate action involves better understanding where they're coming from, but also more efforts to create forms of collective action that are more inviting. Is there anywhere specific that you look to for hope or to inspiration for climate and our future? Um, (laughs) That's hard, isn't it? I mean, there's just, (laughs) there's so much bad news, particularly if you read as much you know, international news as I do, it's just horrifying. I am increasingly of the belief that we cannot sit back and wait for our national and international fora to figure this out for us. And that 
if we are going to get in front of this beast at all, it's most likely going to start elsewhere at some other scale, at the local scale. And it just so happens that that's also a space in which I do find hope and meaning. And it's just easier to connect with people and to be heartened when you are face-to-face with someone rather than perhaps watching a news summary of the latest Conference of the Parties meeting. And so just hearing stories about people and what they find meaningful in their in their lives or creative steps that they've taken, the ability to take actions like even local scale things like starting a car share program or a community garden or even a climate grief support group. These are things we can do at the local scale. And so it kind of has, I think, a an iterative effect in that I can feel like I'm making a difference because, hey, I just sent out a, you know, a shout out on a Facebook group. And now all of a sudden I'm in a meeting of our first support group meeting three days later. So it feels empowering. And at the same time, you can get, you know, you can receive signals that you're making a difference from others because other people can say, you know, thank you for starting this meeting or thank you for giving me a ride today so that we can share a car or thank you for buying my groceries for me or whatever it is. And so we get that feedback and that comes back again to our understanding of human emotionality and the way our emotions have developed evolutionarily and the way that they tend to get expressed and shared is primarily through personal engagement, is through social interaction. I mean, we do feel certainly emotions and we're able to express and even share emotions virtually to a degree, but really it is through making those connections, creating those bonds, building those relationships, and that can only happen on, on the ground. And so I do think that the local scale is the place to seek hope and to engage. And I think that right now, that's probably our best bet, given, you know, kind of the massive failures that we've seen at the federal and international levels. I guess as one final note, I would say that we are quite literally fighting for our lives. And it's easy to forget that. But if we understand that, then there's no point at which it makes sense to give up. No matter how slim the possibility is. You know, if, if you're being chased by a bear, you're never going to go, oh, God, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm just going to turn around and here, take me. You're going to keep running until you absolutely cannot run anymore, no matter what your odds are. And so we need to see climate change for what it is. And that in and of itself motivates the kind of trigger response that we need to have. And that is, holy, we need to do everything we can to stay alive. That was Deborah Davidson talking about climate emotions and collective action. Finding sources of hope for the future of our planet can be really challenging. It's okay to sometimes have some sad or bad days in dealing with climate emotions, but it's also important to try to find ways to give yourself hope or motivation to keep going. Personally, I find local grassroots organizations and climate action efforts to be some of the most inspiring places to look when I'm feeling especially stressed about climate change. 
Endeavors like urban agriculture and community-led renewable energy projects are some of the areas that I personally like to look to for hope. But even more than that, building a community of others who are interested in learning about and engaging in climate action has been the most helpful way for me to feel less isolated in the face of challenges posed by climate change. After all, we really are in this together. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Sarah Titsaz. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week to hear Tara and former Lizzie Barron continue our series on climate emotion. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to Deborah Davidson for the interview. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Chitsas. You can reach us for comments or questions via email at terra at cjsr.com or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. Donna.